Hello, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, however part of the day that you are joining us, and I am glad that you did. I am Dr. Liz Garza-Garcia, and welcome to the BEAM podcast, where you are watching the first series in our advocacy piece. We're so excited that you joined us and so glad to have our special guest here today. We will begin by introducing all of our guests. My first guest is Mr. Eber Perla, who is the principal of the South Irving Collegiate Academy in Irving ISD in beautiful Irving, Texas. So thank you, Eber, for being here with us. We also have CEO and founder of the Dr. E.T. and Company, Dr. Edith E.T. Trevino from down in the valley, our favorite doctora, and we are happy that you are here. Thank you for being here. And last but not least, we have CEO and founder of Global Lingual Education, the great Dr. Barbara Kennedy, and we are so happy that you are here and so glad that you're going to um, be here as part of this advocacy piece for BEAM. So if you don't know about the BEAM organization, BEAM stands for the Bilingual ESL Education Association of the Metroplex. We are happily nestled in the DFW area, so we reach and expand into regions 10 and 11. However, with the pandemic, we have found that we can reach even further with uh, the internet, obviously. So now we are happy and proud that we have members who are as far as region seven, so Tyler, Texas, all the way to region, of course, to region 11. So we have seven, eight, nine, 10, and 11. So we are so excited to have as many members as we do. So we're having this first podcast about the advocacy piece where we are going to focus on what everyone's talking about, which is the teacher shortage in Texas. Okay, so what I want, to, what we wanted to talk about was everything that comes to actually looking at focusing of the teacher shortage specifically in the field of bilingual education. Now, if you weren't aware, bilingual education has actually been dealing with the teacher shortage for over 20 years. It's not a brand new thing to us. Those of us who are in bilingual education, we have been facing this shortage for as long as some of us have been in the field of bilingual education. We know nothing different from a bilingual teacher shortage. So um, we wanted to have this conversation specifically about the teacher shortage, but looking at it through the lens of the bilingual education field. So let's go ahead and get started and, and um, we'll go ahead um, and I'll bounce it off to um, Dr. E.T. first. Dr. E.T., what was your first initial thoughts when you heard that there was going to be a task force created specifically um, to focus on the, on the teacher shortage? I was actually excited because I thought, okay, finally we're moving in the right direction. And if you remember at the beginning, um, teachers weren't chosen, right? I think there, it was other areas. So, so the fact that they finally got teachers in there um, who are living it, experiencing it, um, that makes all the difference, you know? So to me, I, I really saw it as a step in the, in the right direction. Awesome, thank you, thank you. Um, Eber, would you like to join in? What were your first initial thoughts when you heard about the um, task force being created? I think similar along the same lines as Dr. E.T. Um, I approached it a little cautiously optimistic um simply because you know the initial um list of committee members was very heavy in central staff members so i believe it was two teachers uh two to three i can't remember the actual number but it was um 
definitely not the majority. Um, and so um, I, I say I'm cautiously optimistic because there was a lot of pushback on social media and in the news regarding how are you going to create a teacher task force and not include the most important voice, which is our teachers, right? And so I'm optimistic because they went back and they listened um, to that feedback and um, came back and, and added additional uh, teachers. Thank you. Dr. Kennedy, what was your first initial thoughts when you heard of this task force? Well, just like uh, my colleagues here um, in the podcast, I also was uh, cautiously celebratory, but uh, definitely celebratory. As you mentioned, the teacher shortage has been around for as long as I've been in in bilingual education in Texas, which is oof, uh, 35 years now and already at that time. So we know um, that this is a very prevalent problem, not just here in Texas, but across the entire country. And now with the pandemic and the general um, exodus from many occupations, including the teaching profession, uh, we can see this problem becoming even more acute. So I'm thrilled about the prospect of this task force uh, helping to generate ideas to address the problem as soon as possible. Gotcha. Yes, thank you so much. And you're, you're, all of you are completely right. This is, a, it, you, we are very optimistic about this, but as you all mentioned, yes, the first list of those that were selected was very central, um, uh, central admin heavy. So it was, this has been thrilling to hear that now they're adding 25, I believe, um, teachers to be part of this um, task force. So I look forward to, to their guidance and, and what they find. So Dr. Um, Kennedy, I know that the bilingual teacher shortage is very near and dear to your heart. Um, I know that you focused um, your dissertation specifically um, on the bilingual teacher shortage. Can you tell us a little bit, just kind of like what led you to that direction and what was maybe a finding or two that you found from your study? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so, Everything from personal experience to professional experiences led me to that dissertation topic. I myself uh, came into bilingual education here in Texas through an alternative certification program. I originally was at UT Austin and I thought I would become a professor of German, uh, but while I was going to grad school and completing my dissertation there, I, I just really um, began to teach adult ESL and got much more interested in um, public education and in immigrant communities. And so on a personal you know, note, I went uh, basically from grad school through a uh, PhD program into an alternative certification program at Region 13, um, had that excellent experience and then went and taught kindergarten at that time in the 90s in a transitional late exit program. But um, without that alternative pathway to certification, I would not have become an educator and many, many, many of my colleagues and friends throughout the years have become certified either through alternative pathways for bilingual ed or adding it on um, through the supplemental and um, which I know Dr. E.T. does a lot of work on the supplemental end uh, for preparing teachers for that pathway. But without alternative pathways, um, you know, we really could never address this problem. And so that was one piece. I also then um, professionally uh, designed uh, and got approved by the TEA, a district housed alternative certification program. 
um, in which we specifically prepared teachers for Spanish and Vietnamese dual language. Um, so that was another uh, way in which um, I was super excited to to really try to tap into community resources, um, you know, get our paraprofessionals and our uh, local community members who were fluent in Spanish um, and or Vietnamese to join the workforce. So we have to be creative um, in, 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 in approaching this problem so that we can really staff the classrooms. Because in the end, um, as what occurred uh, when I was conducting my dissertation, um, my dissertation included uh, teachers, current first year uh, dual language, alternatively certified teachers, um, and then prospective teachers who wanted to enter the profession. Uh, rather, uh, they were not yet teachers, but they wanted to enter the profession as uh, bilingual dual language teachers, and then um, principals at schools that were encountering the teacher shortage. Um, and all of those voices that were expressed, you know, they, it was really clear from all of those different directions how deeply um, how deep this problem is. And um, also, that's one of the reasons I'm excited about the task force because it will take everybody's voice, everybody's perspective to uh, confront this um, issue and to overcome this hurdle. That's a definite. Like I, um, I know when I read your dissertation, um, that's. That's exactly what I was. I was looking. What it was a breath of fresh air to know that it was being looked at. Um, at, at the time, I was a, in, at the administration, um, at the campus level, and I was able to be, see those creative ways to be able to create pathways um, at our campus uh, to help our uh, recruit our paraprofessionals, um, to even enhance our current bilingual teachers, um, and even. Uh, just just creative ways that you had mentioned it. It was really, really needed. So um, I appreciate the work that you did. Maybe I could just add one thing that was surprising, and um, you may have found this in your own research. Uh, this being a very longstanding, very prevalent up front and center uh, issue for all of us in Texas and across the country, there was almost no research on the topic at the time when I was uh, conducting my research for my dissertation, which was, I think, 2013-14, there was very little. The research I did find was literally from the late 1990s. So that was astonishing, right, that we that we have a problem that that is so well known and uh, and so impactful. Right. I mean, teachers in the classroom, they are the most important impact on student uh, achievement, student growth and on student well-being. Right. And so a shortage of teachers literally means uh, that students go without a teacher or with a uncertified teacher or a substitute, right? So, um, yeah, I just wanted to add that piece that that any, you know, this is an area that still needs a lot more research as well. Definitely, and I, I can totally agree with you. I, I fell into the same, you know, thinking I was not looking hard enough and kept doubting that piece. Um, and I think what really made the eye opener for me was um, really being able to see that there really wasn't that, that because it was not focused for the general population why research it and so it'd be amazing to see how it peaks now that the task force has been created um, how research will peak in that area of the shortage of course not only um, specifying um, specifically the bilingual dual language certification but possibly all the others that are also dealing with the shortage we know for at least definitely the last 10 years um, stem math science um, course dual language special ed these specific contents um, 
have been dealing with the shortage themselves as well. Maybe not as prevalent as the bilingual education shortage, but they have been in dire need of ensuring they have high quality teachers in their classrooms. So definitely, thank you, Dr. Kennedy. So I wanna kind of pivot because Dr. Kennedy mentioned about um, those that are in the process of going into the the field of bilingual ed or even the field of education in general. And I know Dr. E.T., you do a lot of work with our future teachers. You do a lot of work with even um, teachers who are going about um, getting the additional um, certification, supplemental certification to become bilingual educators. Tell us what are what are your, what's your clientele? What are your teachers telling you um, that I guess uh, they face? What challenges are they facing to becoming certified to be a bilingual certified teacher in Texas? Well, definitely it's the bilingual BTLPT test because it's in Spanish. And I took that test, I want to say like in 2013, um, because back then I was a bilingual teacher, but I was like an emergency bilingual teacher forever. And then I thought, well, I'm getting a doctorate in bilingual. I might as well just get take, take the test. When I took the test, I remember thinking, I remember taking the test, leaving the testing site. And I shared that with, with the gentleman from the article. I said, I remember thinking, oh my god this test is insane and i was born and raised in mexico right and all i could think of was if my daughter who's bilingual was to take the test she would fail it and and even then in 2013 or 14 i can't remember um i remember thinking what is the state of texas going to do you know and that was it you know i had the thought it went out into outer space so the number one complaint of course is the the way the test was created um teachers have to speak read listen and write in formal academic spanish some of the passages you know are very high academic i mean that it, so the word that i keep getting from teachers is this is demoralizing you know or they feel defeated or they feel embarrassed because everybody at work knows you failed the test and nobody knows how difficult the test is, you know, and they think it's just, hey, why can't you just pass it? Don't you speak Spanish? Don't you know Spanish? Um, and so my role uh, is to try to help lift them up and empower them that, you know what, let's take it step by step. You do know Spanish, you do understand it. You have it at a different level, you know, because there's different levels of, of Spanish. But what I hear is just a lot of pushback, you know, and it's not because they don't want to, it's not because they, they don't care. It's because they're just stressed and defeated and embarrassed, you know. Um, and so to me, I, I know there has to be a, a, a better way to um, get our teachers certified because I think the level of Spanish that you speak has nothing to do with what an amazing teacher you can be. You know, I, I yeah, I believe we have to know Spanish. We we're teaching Spanish, but to the level of the test, I, I really, I'm, I'm not a fan. Thank you. Thank you for um, adding that. In the article that, that Dr. E.T. was referring to um, came out of the Texas Tribune, um, written by Brian Lopez. Um, he published that um, February of this year. Texas schools are majority Hispanic, and there's a shortage of bilingual teachers since 1990, and the pandemic just made it worse. I thought that title was great, um, and so... When I read it too, and I saw Dr. E.T. in there, I was like, oh, she's got to be on this podcast. This would be amazing. 
So thank you, Dr. E.T., and um, I appreciate the advocacy work that you're doing. Um, I want to stay here on this um, on this piece about, you know, the pandemic. Um, like I said, the task force was created um, because of what struggles and challenges the pandemic brought on for education in, in the state of Texas, not just the field of bilingual ed, just education in the state of Texas. Um, but how has the pandemic really um, worsened the bilingual teacher shortage? Um, again, we were already in a shortage. I mean, now it's basically, you know, hemorrhaging and all we have is a Band-Aid to, to tie it up. So how has the, um, Eber, I'm going to let this, I'm going to let you go to this one first, just because you're at the campus level, you're, you're, you're a principal, um, you come with a, a plethora of, of experience just there in the field. What are you uh, witnessing um, that the pandemic has done um, to even go further to challenge us at the, with the bilingual teacher shortage? Well, well I, I think I'd first want to start off with just the reality of what you all are saying that this bilingual teacher shortage has existed um, for a long time, right? But it took a pandemic and it took, um, it took a pandemic to magnify the situation that was real to us for everybody else to care now, right? Because now it's not just impacting bilingual uh, ESL, uh, bilingual students, now it's impacting everyone. So um, there's an equity piece there. Um, and so in terms of, of, of how, it's, how it's played, I mean, we, we, we're seeing, you know, teachers leaving in droves and, and it's not until the end of the year. They're, they're leaving at semester, they're leaving at the end of the month. Um, the, the pandemic really toll, took a toll on, on, on teachers' social, emotional well-being. Um, it was a very difficult time for everyone. And um, I think we, we, we initially started to do a good job with um, taking care of, of our teachers and taking care of our uh, uh, students in terms of safety with the virtual learning. But then virtual learning had to go because it was no longer being funded by the state, right? And so they were noticing that learning wasn't happening. And so now the priority went back to kind of like, hey, I know that we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic, but now I really need scores because scores were terrible last year. And so it went back to we're prioritizing the, right, the wrong thing and forgetting that we were that we're still in a pandemic. And so um, teachers are, are, are not feeling like they are uh, treated as professionals. Um, they're seeing other other professions where they're still able to, to you know, to to uh, to work from home, be, being paid fairly for all the work. Um, you know, there, there hasn't been much of an increase in teacher salaries for a while, uh, but they, their responsibilities have increased dramatically. So, um, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely. And I want to stay on this subject um, a little more, too, because you you hit um, a piece about um, teachers basically burnt, being burnt out and not just um, bilingual teachers this time. It's all teachers now. So when we think about um, bilingual teachers, I know um, in the um, the uh, uh, Dr. Kennedy helped me with the dual language book that you co-authored. The guiding um, principles, the guiding principles for dual language ed. Thank you. And the guiding principles for dual language that came um, that Dr. Kennedy helped to co-author that came out of the Center of Applied Linguistics. Um, what was brought to a, a very small piece. Thank you. Look at that. It's right there. <laughs> I love it. I'd always by my side. I love it. I think one thing that um, 
was written about um, when it came to the administration piece was the non-teacher duties that our bilingual teachers are being forced to endure um, because being um, though being bilingual is a blessing when you are in a campus where no one else is bilingual it's more like a burden and so some of those non-teaching duties that were actually brought to surface were translating um, for school to home communication, um, translating for administrators or teachers, um, for parents who weren't, who came from a background that was not English only, um, to the point where even having to translate um, instructional material because it was not purchased in the second language or in Spanish. Um, and so I kind of want to focus on that a little bit. Um, what, uh, uh, you know, you, you, I know you've heard of some of these struggles for many of us who, um, for all of us who were in the bilingual classroom, I mean, how many of us had to translate our own stuff? Mm -hmm. yeah. I did, <laughs> right? Um, and so I, I, I can't tell you how many times I sat in an ARD, I was pulled from instruction to sit in an ARD to translate because the translator never showed up. Um, and that was uncomfortable. But these these um, current these, those struggles that happened to me when I was in the profession more than 10 years ago, because that was the last time I was in the classroom, continue to be a struggle. Even now, the guiding principles for dual language came out when in 2015, 2018. 2018. And that's eight years after I left and it was still going on, not to mention how it's continuing to happen even now. Now we're in 2022, still in the pandemic. I refuse to accept that we are coming out. Mm -hmm. um, now we're learning to live with. And so um, understanding these burnouts, what other, other than the non-teaching, um, what other burnouts or struggles um, have um, specifically been placed on our bilingual teachers that are helping them to you know, basically the straw that breaks the camel's back and causes them to leave. Any any feedback from that or any? Um... Well, as a, as, as a teacher, you know, um, there's so much more that's happening. For example, in Telpas, you know, and and as a bilingual teacher, there's, I mean, I guess now with this, with the state changing the exam, but back then there was so much and still, you know, um, responsibilities, um, paperwork, documentation, you know, and so that's why, and, and you know what, this is something that I've heard a hundred times, which is a reason why um, for the longest time I was just an emergency bilingual teacher. When a lot of teachers graduate, they become teachers. The number one thing that people told them and what people would tell me as a young teacher were like, whatever you do, don't get bilingual certified because you're going to get tons of work. And, you, you know, and so it was this negative connotation, right? Of, you know, and so when I did become a bilingual teacher, whether it was by emergency or by certification, that became a reality. The amount of paperwork is insane. And I can imagine even now, you know, I've been out of the classroom a couple of years, but just the documentation, the paperwork, um, it, it's an additional, right? And so then teachers, most teachers don't even get stipends because if you don't have 10 kids, you don't, um, there's, every district is different. So when you look at the amount of work, which they love, you know, they love to be there for the kids. When you look at the amount of paperwork and other duties assigned, and then you look at their pay, you know, a lot of them are like, I can't, I can't, I can't do it. I can't get home 
at nine at night or be at eight at night or be still working from home. Um, it's not, it's not, that's not a life. Right. And so that's one thing that I, that I hear from teachers and that I know adding to everything else is the amount of, um, paperwork that is tied into it. Thank you. Backing off of, of what Dr. E.T. was just saying, um, in my dissertation, I also, one of the findings was that, um, because again, there were, there were teachers involved in the, the collection of that, well, not the collection of the data, but the, but the source of some of the data, they, uh, one thing they expressed and that I've heard echoed uh, with many other teachers as well, is um, that because the entire system of schooling, um, even here in Texas with a, uh, such a large population of, of linguistically and culturally diverse students, still the system is a monolingual English system. And what that means for them, not only does it mean that they are, that teachers are doing a lot of translating, as we've mentioned, of, of materials, instructional materials, um, and other, even assessments, which starts to, you know, now we get into a very slippery slope, right, when we are having to translate assessments because assessments should be normed as they are. And when we translate, we're actually changing the content. So there's that, right? But also, um, even in, for example, lesson planning. So one of the findings in the in the um, dissertation was that that the lesson planning was largely run, especially because typically bilingual teachers are in some type of a strand. They might be a singleton, and if they're lucky, they might have another peer on their grade level. Um, but either way, they're usually, even if they're in the majority, they still may not necessarily be the team lead, right, at the grade level. And when they're planning, the planning is kind of running along the train tracks of a monolingual English everything, right? And so what was expressed, and which I also hear everywhere, <laughs> uh, is that, you know, we leave our, our planning meetings, which again, time is so valuable and so short for teachers. We leave our planning meeting and then we get to start our actual planning. Um, because a lot of what, you know, is shared in the meeting either has to be translated or you know, or replaced with something in Spanish that hopefully can do the trick, um, or adjusted or adapted, right? So, so that that type of work, even to just plan and deliver effective lessons, um, which is really what, right? That's what we're here to do as teachers. We want to be impactful with our students, but we're spending so much time just trying to get the materials and the instruction prepared so we can deliver it appropriately, right? That also just that creeps into weekends and nights. And also in the end, teachers can feel really frustrated, right? Because they've spent so much time trying to do all that, but usually they end up cutting some corners, right? Because we can only translate so much. Um, so I just kind of wanted to bring in that lesson planning piece because that came out very strong and clear. And I, I still hear that today as I work with teachers here in, in Texas and across the country. And I love that you bring that up too, um, because I know as an instructional coach, I was trained to look at lesson plans um, and to see what question, what guiding questions are we using. Um, and I know when I was the, I was the first bilingual instructional coach on my campus, uh, the, my first assigned campus, that the bilingual teachers, you know, told me uh, all the time, just thank you for looking at our questions and giving us feedback. And when they first gave me their lesson plans, I was like, thank you for giving me these, but these are in English. Are you going to teach all in English this week? I need to see your Spanish guiding questions because I, you're, you're also teaching 50-50 um, language arts in Spanish. I need to see what 
what words are you using? What high academic words are you using? How are we incorporating um, state assessment vocabulary into our level of questioning? And they were taken back because they'd never been asked that. Some had been teachers for 15 years and had never been asked that question. So I love that you bring that point up, um, Dr. Kennedy, about lesson planning. And you're totally, you're totally right. When the acceptance is a very monolingual systematic um, base of of a dual language um, classroom, you're only feeding one side of the, the languages our students can speak. So thank you, Dr. Kennedy. Um, so we, we're, we're not at all ignorant to what the pandemic has done to the field of education. We know that there are learning gaps um, uh, with all of our students. We know that our emergent bilingual students, um, also how Dr. Kennedy addressed our culturally linguistic diverse students, um, what we saw in, 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 at least in the Dallas-Fort Worth area was what we thought our kids were um, tech savvy and tech literate. Um, we found they, they weren't as, as technology literate as we thought they were. Um, troubleshooting the smallest things, um, and then also noticing that a majority of our techs, our techs, our techs, our technology departments did not have a second language tutorial videos like they did all in English. So we saw where we as schools and as districts could grow and develop to ensure that equity um, was being met for our students. So I want to kind of uh, think about what other things um, um, have you seen of how we are going about to what we have been doing to recruit and retain our bilingual teachers. So um, whoever would like to start, um, I'm not going to pinpoint it to any one person, um, but just the recruitment and retention piece that 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 our districts or schools are doing? So um, I think that the, the, the districts that are being successful in, in the recruitment of bilingual um, educators are the ones that took it seriously when it was a shortage. No, when, you know, it, they didn't wait until the pandemic. They've always realized that this was a critical need. And so they've, um, they've made sure to take care of their people. They've got good practices, whether it's the stipends. Um, I think that through the the uh, some of the, the the funding that TEA has provided, um, they've been able to, you know, really increase those sign-on bonuses. The um, stipends have increased, um, but the ones that are successful, in my experience, I've seen that they took it seriously before the pandemic. So this is just uh, an additional, you know, we're 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 continuing business as usual. I, I agree. The stipends um, are helpful, very helpful. Uh, and the sign-on bonuses for recruiting and for retention. Of course, we know there are even sort of bidding wars going on as we speak um, with the stipends going up, you know, as different districts compete. Um, but I've also observed that a stipend only goes so far and that teachers who stay um, within a district it's usually a combination of the stipend, which of course is very important, but also the systems of support in the district and that alignment of systems of support. Um, teachers generally, especially bilingual teachers who do have passion, I mean, most of us have entered in this field for very personal reasons, right? Not just, you know, to get money, um, but money is important. So I'm not downplaying that. Uh, but if if um, if the supports are in place, uh, the model that's being implemented uh, makes sense. 
um, and they're seeing success with their students due to this, you know, due to their own hard work and the supports and systems that are in place, they're much more likely to stay, even if it's, you know, a, a challenging school, a challenging population, all of those challenges, uh, because I believe they, that then we feel we have a sense of community and common purpose, and we, we are all on the same, we're, in the, we're working in the same direction. Um, so districts, whenever I work with districts on retention, we do check and make sure we have the, the financial end, the incentives in place, but then I really try to encourage that alignment across all departments and not just over there in the quote unquote bilingual ESL department, they take care of everything. No, it really does need to be systemic so that we have um, supports that, that make sense and the teachers aren't constantly trying having to translate or adjust or adapt or close their doors and do it the way they think they should, despite what they might be getting told um, from above, if that guidance is not aligned with uh, bilingual and biliteracy uh, instructional practices. Because sometimes that also occurs, right? That is why we need to have more wide, uh, more system-wide understanding of bilingualism, biliteracy, um, because if it's a monolingual mindset across the entire district, that permeates uh, all the way down from leadership, right? From principals who are evaluating based on monolingual norms um, at, at no fault to their own if they're, if they're directed to do that, right? Down to teachers that are being sort of pressured to deliver instruction in alignment with monolingual English norms, even when they themselves, you know, end up, you know, either through their own reading or professional development, they know this is not really working. Um, but they have to do it because of that system. So that mismatch between what works uh, and what the research says to do and what sometimes is being dictated from at the district level, that mismatch can really drive teachers to a district that doesn't that, that has everything in alignment. I will also like to add, um, you know, Dr. Kennedy, I know that you were um, the former director of EL support at TEA and um, I can at the time under your leadership, I was a compliance officer, um, specifically over Title III. So I lived and breathed um, um, uh, Chapter 89. So around the time when I was in compliance was also when um, Chapter 89 got rewritten. And there was more specificity to what our uh, dual language programs look like. How do we, what What do they sound like? What, when we use this terminology, this is what we mean. And I think that was going into the right direction of what we needed to be more unified um, as a state, um, mainly because we, we, we do know that all of our districts, it doesn't matter where we are, they all have a, what would be considered a pretty high um, mobility rate. Nothing is, is too small, right? And if we had that, if we continued with that type of uniformity to just have that same terminology so we would understand each other when we spoke, specifically when it came to LPACs, like, man, I can't tell you how many times I had to call a campus and ask, did you do an LPAC on this student? What was, what was the determination of the LPAC committee? What, what kind of program is that? <laughs> So I loved when it was rewritten um, to bring on that um, terminology so we were all on the same page. So I can only hope that <laughs> we continue on that path, um, utilizing our, our, um, our, our chapter 89 to help in, in having that, um, that same verbiage. 
Um, you guys, I don't know if you um, uh, knew of the uh, Comprehensive Center Network that comes out of um, the District of Columbia in Delaware. They created a review also addressing specifically the bilingual teacher shortage. And something that they brought on as the um, to help uh, districts, especially where they are from, um, to retain and recruit more bilingual teachers was, of course, creating a grow your own program, um, which we had mentioned about elevating our paraprofessionals um, and helping them to go through the pipeline of becoming a certified bilingual teacher. Um, not only that, residency programs. And one thing that I kind of think gets overlooked a lot is mentorship programs. Um, plenty, plenty of teachers are given classroom keys and good luck. It, that type of, 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 grow, of, of just go for it, it, to me, I hear a lot of sink and swim. And I think just any teacher who has to experience first year in a sink or swim model like that um, is sure going to leave us a lot faster than they, than, than they should have if they were given an opportunity to be mentored um, and to grow in the profession, to have somebody to, um, to learn from. Um, so I, I really, if um, those of you who are joining us on the podcast who are listening, if you have not had an opportunity to kind of look at that and you're looking for more creative ways, like Dr. Kennedy had mentioned, I know that that report it doesn't give go into detail as far as how to create them, but it does provide details on what that looks like, what a successful look like, how can you evaluate the success of a program like that that you would bring in. So um, uh, I thought that was amazing. It's from the Comprehensive Center Network that comes out of um, Delaware, District of Columbia, Maryland, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. So our friends from the, from, um, the East that um, I know are doing great things over there too. In addition to mentors, absolutely. Um, there is uh, a, di a bit of a disconnect between the educator preparation programs, whether they're uh, institutes of higher education or alternative certification programs, and the uh, the knowledge and skills that are actually uh, required to be, you know, a, an effective bilingual teacher. Um, we had, you know, I know that the educator preparation, the teacher preparation standards um, have been adjusted. I haven't really quite been able to access them and see exactly what they are now, uh, but they were very, very antiquated. And also the educator preparation programs, if you've ever talked with the professors in those programs, they um, express concern that even in their university prep programs, there's the general preparation and then they get to sort of hop on and do a couple of extra courses for bilingual. So yet again, even at the university level, in many cases, there's still this sort of afterthought for bilingual teachers uh, as if um, really the work is exactly the same, but you just kind of need to take a couple little skill up, you know, skills up trainings and you're sort of good to go, um, which then positions new teachers when they enter the classroom to already not necessarily be well prepared. Also their placement when they're doing their student teaching is less likely to be in a bilingual classroom um, because there may not be that much attention to placing them that way. Um, and then finally, when they get there, if they don't have a mentor. So I just kind of wanted to flesh out the multiple layers and disconnect well, points of disconnection for teachers that even, you know, in good faith have gone through an entire educator preparation program, spent a lot of money and time and effort, right? And yet when they land in the classroom, they may feel 
really like that fish out of water as you described. Oh yeah, definitely. Thank you for bringing that. And it kind of brings us to um, the next question or the next topic of, you know, what efforts could be made? Um, you know, Dr. Kennedy brings on with the universities who um, train our future teachers on um, making, if they're going to be in a specific um, in, a, in, a in a specific program, such as a bilingually certified, then the classes that they take to help them to be trained to teach and to be accepting and to understand their responsibility as a bilingual teacher in a bilingual classroom with um, our um, bilingual students, that it's um, important that their classes aren't a elective. There was, they're not under the elective. This is part of a core piece that they should also go under. So thank you, Dr. Kennedy, for bringing that part. But what other efforts do you think or, um, you know, uh, that TEA could do, that districts could do to help combat our bilingual teacher shortage? Um, Dr. E.T., would you like to start us with that one? I keep going back to, I know we mentioned the stipends, but even the stipends are kind of like misleading because I remember as a bilingual teacher, if I was in a specific district, the stipend was a certain amount. But then once you were in the classroom, it changed, you know? And so it was, you know, how many kids you had, or even if the child left like the day before of the set date that you signed the contract, you wouldn't get your stipend. So, you know, if there was a way that districts or, you know, could, could give the stipends to the teachers for being bilingual certified, whether you have 10 kids or 20 kids, because here's a teacher. And I remember meeting some of my colleagues who were so excited. I'm going to get the stipend and this and that. And then one child withdrew and that changed the whole deal. And so we were like, well, where does that money go? I mean, it was allotted for us. Um, and, you know, uh, I remember even teachers, would, what they would do is they would say, okay, this is my stipend. I'm going to divide it by so many students to see how much it was that, you know, and sometimes it would come out to cents, you know, on the dollar. And so one thing that we would always think about is, you know, there is funding. So why, why not use it on our teachers? And a lot of them have to buy their own materials, no matter if they're in the wealthiest district. I mean, some districts, they do a lot of funds, but every bilingual teacher I've ever met goes and buys everything for their kids. They buy materials, they buy markers, they buy crayons. And then their stipend is not what it's supposed to be. Give me a break, you know? So to me, it would be honor the stipends, but really honor the stipends. Don't give them a stipend and then, oh, by the way, we the disclaimer says you have to have 10 kids and you have nine, you know, so you don't get it. Or things like that, that I remember as a teacher that were kind of disheartening, but we know that what we do what we do, not for the money, obviously, right? But still, our teachers deserve to be paid um, and they deserve to be compensated for everything that they do. I mean, even looking at COVID, how many people had to bump up their Wi-Fi, you know? And some districts did compensate for that, some did not, but it, it's just, I don't, I don't think many people understand all that the bilingual teachers do. You know, and, and unless you've been there in the classroom and you're doing it and you understand and you see the, the workload and um, then you learn to appreciate. And I think um, for sure it's the stipends, honor the stipends and, and pump them up higher. Thank you. I'd like to add um, for, for the partnership maybe between districts and, and universities. So 
I'm in a neat situation where I'm opening up an early college high school and students are have the opportunity to earn a two-year degree for free. And uh, I'm proud to say that one of our pathways is a teaching pathway. And so we've partnered with uh, Dallas College. And so the more we're digging into it, um, we found out that Dallas College has the opportunity to earn a bachelor's in EC6 uh, education. And so um, I, think, I, think, I think I say this to say that um, how are we supporting not only you know growing our pipeline but the 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 talent that we already have in our classroom so um we were housed at an early childhood campus and every early childhood teacher has a pair of a teacher assistant right they are teachers they are doing the um the same work that our uh, certified teachers are doing how are we tapping into that pool how are we supporting them so that they can be credentialed to officially do the work that they're already doing. Um, they're taking over the classes. So like scholarships, how are we, um, I mean, and, and the great thing about it is that they're already doing the work, they're already getting, you know, trained. Um, and so how are we, how can we make that an easy transition in terms of, from a financial standpoint, uh, helping them get those credentials so that they can transition into officially becoming a bilingual, uh, bilingual certified teacher. And, and you know what, sir, what you're saying is 100% accurate because I get so many paraprofessionals that reach out to me on the sessions that I offer, like on Saturdays or whatever. And so um, the first thing I ask is, is your district, ask your district to they'll pay for you. You know, I don't want you to pay out of pocket. 10 times out of 10, no, my district said no. So then of course, you know, I'll give them a scholarship or whatever, but, but yeah, they're, so here's a paraprofessional, their income is so limited they have to pay out of pocket to go to a BTLPT training. It's crazy, right? So I think that's like, that's 100% on target, what you're saying. I agree. And I think also something that you had mentioned about um, uh, the stipend, uh, Dr. E.T., was I, I think it was one thing that irritated me um, as a classroom teacher was when I was being pulled from instruction to translate for arts, translate for um, LPACs even. Like, oh, shouldn't somebody in here be bilingual? <laughs> um, any, anything I was having is translate for a counseling phone call, something, because somebody could not speak to the parent because they didn't speak Spanish. Or and writing the I, letters for the school. Yes, and I was, I, I did, I voiced my, like, um, so I don't think I'm supposed to be doing this out of instruction. You can send it to me, email, ask me later, I will get to it, but not while I, and I remember my administrator telling me, that's why you're getting the stipend. <laughs> and I was like, well, then oh I don't want God. it. <laughs> yeah, I and, and, I'm sure, and, I'm sure, and I'm sure you didn't get the whole stipend. <laughs> I, you know what? I kind of want to go back and look at my old paychecks. <laughs> the other thing, I was also going to add that, that the stipend can turn into basically a ticket to require a teacher to do anything and everything at the district's request, which is absolutely absurd. So that's one, um, <laughs> and it happens and continues to happen. Stop complaining, you get a stipend, that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, I was gonna say something else, but I forget what it was. <laughs> It'll come back. When it does, just tell us. Um, <laughs> So really, as I mentioned in the beginning of this conversation was, uh, you know, yes, the task force was created and it was created because now there is an impact that the teacher shortage is having on the field of education in the state of Texas. 
The thing is, is that those of us who have been in bilingual education have been, we walked into a teacher shortage from the beginning. I remember going through my um, traditional programming at Texas Women's and them and my professor telling me, you will never not have a job. You are a bilingual certified teacher in Texas. You're not, you know, you don't have just the, the emergency permit. You, you are a bilingual certified teacher. You will not ever not have a job. And I went in with that confidence, knowing that. Um, which, you know, I kind of think that's probably why I butted heads with a lot of people. <laughs> um, knowing I, I would not um, have to deal with that, but understanding when I left the classroom to go into administration, the students who I would have served at the campus I was at had a non-certified or long-term sub five years after, up until five years after I left. And the thing is, as part of my research of what I did was, you know, one of my chairs told me that, you know, we should really look at, you know, how it's, it's, a, it's a big deal that um, our bilingual teachers leave, in, uh, leave the classroom empty to go into advance in their profession. I said, but we also should not limit them to doing that because we also, as we have a shortage of bilingual classroom teachers, we have a bigger shortage of bilingual administrators who can lead them to be great um, bilingual teachers. I want to thank my guests who um, are here. I, um, you know, Dr. E.T. from um, E.T. and Company, uh, Dr. E.T. and Company, um, please go check out her website at dreetandcompany.org. Am I right, Dr. E.T.? Perfect. Yes, yes. Also, please go check out Dr. Barbara Kennedy's globallingualeducation.org. Am I right? It's globalingo.com.com. Please go check out her yes. website and all the great resources that she has to provide. Dr. Um, BK, as we also know her, is amazing. And of course, the wonderful and great things that Mr. Eber Perla is doing in the great district of Irving ISD, opening up, opening up one of the first collegiate high schools. Um, I can't wait for your first cohort to come out of there um, with their bachelor's degrees, and that's gonna be amazing. So thank you, to, um, Mr. Perla, for being here. Thank all of you guys for being here. Last but not least, the one thing that um, the Bilingual ESL Education Association wants to stress, we are proud that finally the teacher shortage is coming to surface, that it is there. We also hope that what we have learned in the field of bilingual education to help in um, combating the bilingual teacher shortage, what we are hoping for is that um, the task force will be able to see what research has been developed, what practices have been done to help in the bilingual teacher shortage that can be utilized to helping combat the teacher shortage that now currently exists, not only in Texas, but in the nation right now due to the global pandemic. So we thank all of you for being, I thank all of you for being here. Thank those of you um, who are joining us on this BEAM podcast, the first series of advocacy. And I hope that you will join us. If you're looking to join a great organization that will open you up to a wonderful network of people who are in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, who are all about educating, collaborating, and advocating for our emergent bilinguals, please go visit our website at www.beamdfw.org. I am your proud president, Dr. Liz Garza-Garcia, and thank you so much for joining us. Bye.